Father, we come to you this morning having nothing to offer you, but needing everything from you. Lord, we just want to ask that you would speak to us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, each of us in our own hearts, Lord, with all the burdens on our mind, all the things that have been going on in our life, we just need a word from you. So this morning, we just want to take a moment in silence to invite you, the God of the universe, to come and to speak to our heart. Thank you, Father, that that is a prayer that you delight to answer. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for revealing a more beautiful picture of Jesus this morning that changes every part of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My freshman year in high school, I had gone to a small elementary school, just like we have up here at Templeton Hills Adventist School, all the way through eighth grade. And after my eighth grade year, graduated, and there wasn't another Christian school nearby that my parents thought that I, uh, well, they may have thought I should go to one, but I felt like it wasn't time for me to go off to the academy that was down in Fresno yet. So that year, they said, well, why don't you try doing a home study program? And I don't know if any of you have ever done a home study or homeschool program before, but sometimes that can leave you with a lot of time on your hands, which is a great thing for a 14-year-old, 13, 14, 15-year-old. It was exciting for me. I got to, to choose all different kinds of things that I would invest in. I thought, well, I'm going to start reading this book, and I'm going to learn about this, and I'm going to ride my bike for this many hours a day, and I had a lot more time to be doing things that I wanted to do. Well, I decided that I wanted to learn how to be a better rock climber. So I went to the store, and I got what they call the Mountaineer's Handbook, or Bible. It's this big, thick book that had all this details about mountaineering from how to climb waterfalls that are iced over to how to tie different knots to how to uh, survive at high levels uh, with, with little oxygen. All these different kinds of things that I was excited about because I was planning to climb Mount Everest eventually. So began to practice the different things that I found in this book and my brother happened to be home for spring break and I kind of, I think I wanted to impress him a little bit. Some of you younger brothers know what that's like. And I thought, I'm going to show him how good my knots are. So I went in the garage, and I was looking around, and I found these ropes in the garage. I thought, yeah, these will work. I know the book said that you need rock climbing ropes and special harnesses. I'll just take this rope from the garage. So I took this rope from the garage. I had to cut off some different pieces of it. It even told in the book how to make your own harness out of ropes. So I made this harness out of the ropes, and then I, I took the rope, and then I said, I know what I'll do. I climbed up into a tree. And I, I was about 15, 20 feet up in this tree. I tied the rope around that tree. Then I went down, went across to another tree, climbed up about 15, 20 feet over there, tied the rope around that tree, tied it tight so there was tight between the two trees. And then I had learned about these ropes that you can hook between the harness and the rope and that you can go across a rope like that. So I began to tie it, hook it into my harness, hooked it into that rope, put these little knots on there, just like it told me in the book. I was following the instructions really carefully and precisely, except for that I had the wrong kind of rope. And I began to go across. 
and I'm there, I'm going across, and I get about halfway across, and these little, this little rope is beginning to get really stuck, and these knots are getting stuck, and pretty soon it was getting so stuck that I, I started to, to go a little bit upside down, and I'm looking down below me, and about 15 feet down is all this debris, and like, I lived out in the country in Korsgold, so there's all these sticks, sharp sticks looking at me, and I thought, I should have cleared some of that before I did this. So right about that time, my brother comes walking out of the house. He was in college and he came, he was home on spring break. He comes walking out and he looks up in the tree. He's like, is that really the way you want to die? And he turned and he walked back inside the house and left me dangling 15 feet upside down, wondering what I was going to do. My confidence was misplaced. My abilities weren't as sufficient as I thought they were for the task that I was hoping to accomplish. And it didn't leave my brother very impressed. Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us how confident he was in the life that he had been living. Last week we talked about Paul when he was on the Damascus Road and how he had a revelation of Jesus that radically changed his life. How he had thought that he was doing exactly what God had called him to do. As he went to persecute the Christians, as he went to put to death Christians, he thought that he was on a mission that God himself had given to him. I mean, after all, he had letters from the high priest, that important leader of their worship system. They thought, he thought, if anything, he was doing God's will. Philippians chapter 3 records how Paul had lived, and we talked a little bit about this last week. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4 says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. If anybody could be confident about their abilities, I can have more confidence, Paul says. Circumcised the eighth day, exactly when he was supposed to be. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. We talked about last week how the Pharisees kept the law, what they thought was perfectly. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, I was perfect. I was doing it all absolutely right. I had it all together. Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, trash, that I may but gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul had a radical experience. Go back to Acts chapter 9 with me. We spent some time there last week. In Acts chapter 9, God grabs a hold of Paul with a radical revelation of Jesus. Jesus shows up to Paul in a radical way. And we're going to look at this story again where we left off. We had started and we talked about how Paul came and he's breathing threats and murderous things that he was going to put to death these Christians. He was going to do away with this sect that was following Jesus. He has letters from the high priest himself. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. 
Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let's pause there for a second. What was Saul going to do? Saul was going to put to death Christians. Who was Saul persecuting? Jesus. But I thought he was going to put to death the followers of Jesus. I thought he was going to throw them in prison. What does this have to do with Jesus? How is this persecuting Jesus? Jesus goes on to say, verse 5, And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is beautiful. When you are going through a rough time, when everything is going on in your life, that the enemy is attacking you in a myriad of ways, Jesus says, he's attacking me. Jesus identifies so closely with you. He loves you so intensely that he feels the pain that you are going through in all the trials that you face. You know, I think of it as when my wife gets sick first few times when we were married and we got she got sick she had I think it was a stomach flu or something like that I woke up and she was in the bathroom doing what you do when you have the stomach flu and I went in there and I was trying to help as best I could and then she decided to just lay on the floor near the bathroom so I went and I got a blanket or sleeping bag out of the closet and then we went and I put it over her and then I I went and I got a second one and I put it down beside her and I just laid there you know, if, if somebody else was sick, I probably wouldn't have thought to do that. But because it was my wife and I loved my wife, I thought, I don't want her to be here by herself going through this. I just want to be in this with her. I want to be together. We joke that this is one for the scrapbook. We'll often say as we're sick together and we're trying to watch out for each other. We still haven't made that scrapbook. I'll have to get Jan Hoffman's help with that. But... You just want to be together. When it's somebody that you love and they're hurting, when they're going through something, you feel their pain, don't you? The more that you love somebody, when they hurt, I can't imagine what it's like when you see your little child going through something, going through pain, going through suffering. You feel it, don't you? I've seen the agony on parents' faces as they watch what's happening in their children's life, and it's like it's happening to them. It's like they wish that it could happen to them instead of to their child. How much more does Jesus love you? How much more does Jesus care about your life? And so when you are going through something and when you feel alone, when you feel like you're just having to face this on your own, Jesus is feeling it with you. That's why he's able to say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you realize in that you are going to these people, you're going to throw them in prison, you're going to hurt them, their wives, their children, you're hurting me. Jesus is with you in everything you go through. Verse 6, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Here is proud Saul. Here is Saul who was raised as a Pharisee, who was taught under Gamaliel. Here is Saul who has all this kind of authority, who is probably on his way to being one of the greatest leaders 
in the Jewish nation. Suddenly, he's so blind that he can't find his way into Damascus. He's having to be led by the hand into Damascus. All because he's had a revelation of Jesus. Can you imagine what that was like for Saul? How terrifying at first it would have been to see this bright light and then to realize that it was Jesus, the one who you thought you were going to kill his followers. And now he's telling you to go into Damascus. He would have been terrified at this point. Verse 8, Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, and they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul is traumatized. Saul is, is in deep distress. Saul is shocked by what has taken place. For three days, he doesn't eat. For three days, he has no sight. He's blind. What do you think is the one thing he's seeing? You know, oftentimes to torture somebody, people will do something horrific to a person's family and then they'll put their eyes out. What did Saul have happen? He saw Jesus, and then his eyesight was taken away from him. So what do you think he's thinking about for those three days? Saul, who had been raised, who had probably memorized vast portions of the Old Testament, who knew the Bible backwards and forwards, he's thinking about Jesus. And he's wondering, what did I miss? How did, how did this not make sense to me before? What was it about Jesus that I didn't understand? And suddenly I imagine Isaiah 53 comes into his mind. He begins to think about that sheep that is led as a lamb to the slaughter. He begins to think about the Old Testament sanctuary service. He thinks about Isaiah 9 in chapter, in verse 6 that says, His name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, that a child will be born unto us. He begins to think about all of these Old Testament prophecies and he realizes that he has missed Jesus. And I imagine that he also thinks about Isaiah. Go with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. I am the first and I am the last. Last week we read in Revelation chapter 1, and we'll go there in a minute, how Jesus said, I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and the end. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it to me and set it in order before me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not declared to you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no rock. I know not one. Saul had come into contact with Jesus, the rock of ages, who later he would go on to say that rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness, that rock was Jesus. As he studied through the Old Testament, as he revealed, went through it in his mind's eye, he was seeing pictures, glimpses, revelations of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. For three days, he neither ate nor drank. He was there in darkness and silence thinking about Jesus. 
Who was this Savior, this Messiah that he was suddenly realizing was the risen Lord? Going back to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Now there was a certain... uh, So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. What was Saul doing? Praying. Praying. During those three days, he did the one thing that he could do, and that was to talk to Jesus, to talk to the one who had appeared to him on the road, to ask God to reveal to him what it was that he had missed all this time. And in vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Saying, Lord, are you sure about this? Did you really get this straight? Are you really thinking clearly at this point? Do you really want for me to go and talk to Saul? Because he is here to kill us. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. To bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Go to Saul. I have an amazing plan for him. I'm just barely beginning the work in his life. I'm going to use him to declare about me before kings, before all of the Gentiles. The world is going to learn about me through Saul, who will become Paul. I love what Ananias does. Verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And don't miss verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. First thing Saul did was to go and to begin preaching Jesus. Everything had changed for Saul. He'd come to Damascus in order to put to death all the Christians, but instead he goes and he begins preaching about this Jesus that he had seen on the road to Damascus. Coming in contact with Jesus, seeing a revelation of Jesus can totally and radically transform our lives. But I see a picture here in Saul's life of something that I have often missed in my own journey with Jesus. And that is that Jesus must always be the first and the last of my experience. He must be the alpha and the omega of my experience. He's the one that starts my journey, but he is also the one that has to complete it. I love what it says in the Signs of the Times, November 10, 1888. It says, The light and power and glory that had arrested Paul at his conversion did not cease its operations upon him after he was converted to believe in Christ. That conversion experience wasn't the end for Paul. That was just the very beginning. As the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, he became an effectual 
missionary worker. He proclaimed the truth as it is in Jesus. He was a clear, eloquent speaker and could meet his adversaries on almost any ground on which they chose to approach him. He met every class of people from men of renown to the heathen idolaters, setting before them the evidences of Christianity. His religion came from God and no power on earth could extinguish the light of heaven. You know, it's because of Paul that we have the majority of the New Testament. It's because of what God did in stepping into one man's life who was persecuting Christians that we have this precious truths that have transformed your life and my life. But what if Saul had continued to live the life that he lived before. As a Pharisee, he had been doing it in his own strength. He had been trying to accomplish righteousness through following the law to the best of his ability, and he'd come up woefully short. What if he'd continued in that way, rather than letting Jesus be all that he wanted to be? Go back to Revelation chapter 1 with me. We looked at this last week, and it was our scripture reading today, Revelation chapter 1. Where Jesus comes and he gives the revelation to John on the Isle of Patmos. We're going to jump down to verse 8. Jesus, when he shows up, actually here it may be God the Father first is the one that's speaking. And then later on we get to what Jesus shares. But they are one and the same as the Trinity. Verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let me ask you a question. Is God Almighty to you? Is God Almighty to me? Is He the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end in every part of my life, in every situation, every circumstance, everything that I'm going through? Do I let Him handle all of my problems? Do I trust my salvation completely to Him? You see, sometimes we think that we have to do the beginning part. Here it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now this is in the Greek alphabet. It begins with Alpha and it ends with Omega. So this is similar to saying, I am the A to the Z. I am all-encompassing. It's we don't exactly have a phrase that we use quite like that in English, but it's, it's similar to saying, I am everything. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I'm the A to Z. Here Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha. I am where your experience started. Now here's something critical to grasp in coming to Jesus. Sometimes we feel like in order to get to Jesus, we got to do some changing in our lives. Have you felt that way before? You think in order to go back to church, in order to get things right, in order to really be accepted by God, I've got to line a few more things up in my life in order to be able to come to Jesus. But Jesus says, I am the alpha. I'm the first. I'm the beginning. I am where it starts in your life. You can't even have repentance. You can't come to faith in Jesus without Jesus. Romans chapter 2 says it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. This is a critical error that a lot of us fall into. And that's the reason that a lot of people won't come to church. It's because they don't feel good enough. They don't feel ready to come to Jesus. But Jesus says, you got to start with faith in me. you got to come to me first. I am the only one who can even give you repentance. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. 
Your experience has to start with Jesus. This is what Saul experiences. He's on that road to Damascus and Jesus shows up for him amazingly. As he comes and he sees Jesus, after that, he's blind. He realizes how helpless he really is. And until we realize how helpless we are without Jesus, we're going to be lost. We're not going to be able to find our way in this world. In the book, The Desire of Ages, it says, The proud heart strives to earn salvation. But both our title and our fitness for it are found in the righteousness of Christ. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until, convinced of his own weakness... And stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. This is where Jesus had to bring Saul to. He had to come to the place where he realized that he had nothing. That he could provide nothing, but that Jesus was everything. Then he can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. He has unrestricted access to him in whom all fullness dwells. We can't even come to Jesus until we recognize our need, until we recognize that we have nothing to offer. So stop trying to do it on your own. Look to Jesus as your Alpha and Omega, your beginning and your end, the first and the last of your Christian experience. Continuing in Revelation chapter 1, Verse 9 says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We talked last week about how if you were going to send a message to Asia Minor, to these churches, this is the exact route that you would have sent that messenger on. And it was an, a, a circuitous route through Asia Minor, and it basically represented the totality of the Christian church. Then we read about this revelation of Jesus, starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. What does this make you think of? He turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. If you saw lampstands, what would it make you think of? We've been talking in the Revelation of Hope about the sanctuary and about the seven-branched menorah candlestick. Now, this is actually the Greek word that's used in Hebrews to describe that lampstand in the sanctuary. It's the same word that's used in the Septuagint to describe the lampstand that was in the sanctuary. So here he sees these lampstands, seven of them. And then he looks at one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, The ephod that the priest would wear was a garment that was woven in one piece from uh, from his neck all the way down to the to his ankles. It was one long robe, and girded about the chest with a golden band. The high priest would wear a golden ephod about his chest. His head and hair was white like wool, as white as snow. The high priest would have an ephod around, or would have a turban around his head, and on the front of that turban it said, Holiness to the Lord. 
and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. What is John seeing here? He's seeing that Jesus is the high priest. He's seeing that Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of all that Old Testament imagery of the sanctuary. And as he looks and he sees, he realized that though he had letters from the high priest to put to death the followers of Jesus, thinking of Paul, though Paul had these letters from the high priest to put to death the followers of Jesus, the true high priest is Jesus Christ himself. And John here sees a revelation of him standing there. And then look at what happens in verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. Here is John the apostle, somebody who had known Jesus face to face, somebody who had known Jesus, walked with Jesus, and yet when he comes in contact with this amazing revelation of Jesus, he falls as if dead, shocked by this beautiful picture of Jesus. What is this imagery of this sword coming out of Jesus' mouth? It's kind of odd, isn't it? In fact, it appears several other times in the book of Revelation. But we can tie it into Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, it says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, using the exact same uh, Greek that's used here in Revelation to describe this sword that is coming out of Jesus' mouth. Here, Jesus is seen as having this sharp sword coming out of his mouth. He has the Holy Spirit, which uses the Word of God in hearts and lives to make transformations. This is what happened in John chapter 20. When Jesus appears to his disciples, one of the first times that he appears to his disciples after the resurrection, he comes to them and he says, Peace be with you. And then it says he breathed on them. Not just to let them know that he was a living being and that he had good breath from being in heaven. But it says that he breathed on them and then he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. See, that sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth represents that he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of his word, brings life into our lives. So here you have a picture of a high priest walking among the candlesticks. This is exactly what the high priest was told to do. Go back to Leviticus chapter 24 with me. Leviticus chapter 24 tells us what Aaron was to do as the high priest. Leviticus chapter 24, starting in verse 1, says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure olive oil, pressed for the light, uh, pressed of olives for the light, to make the lamps burn continually. So what was the purpose of the olive oil that the priest had in the Old Testament sanctuary? It was for, to give light to the sanctuary. And how often was this light to burn? Continuously. So the purpose of having this oil was so that the lamp could be continually burning. 
Verse 3, outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it. Aaron was the high priest. From evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. This was the job of the high priest. He was to tend to these lamps, these golden lamps that were giving light to the sanctuary. He was to go and make sure that the wicks were trimmed. He was to make sure that there was enough oil in them to make sure that they kept burning brightly so that the beauty of the sanctuary could continue to reflect. Can you imagine what that place looked like? Solid gold, all the beautiful artifacts in there as that light reflected around how incredibly beautiful it was and how important it was that these lights, these candlesticks, be constantly kept burning. So as John in Revelation 1 sees this picture of Jesus, Jesus is there and he's keeping these flames burning. He's making sure that the lampstand is still burning. But what does this represent? What do these lampstands represent here in Revelation chapter 1? Let's go back to verse 17. So then when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And here we go. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers. This is sometimes applied to heavenly beings, and sometimes it's applied to human beings who are messengers from God. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So what do these lampstands represent? They represent the churches. They represent God's people, which we saw as this picture of totality of the Christian church. These seven churches, which were real churches in Asia Minor, but yet which represent all of God's people, and which, as we study these further, we realize that it represents God's people throughout history. So Jesus is seen as standing there in the midst of his people. When you are persecuted, Jesus is right there with you. When you're going through anything, Jesus is right there with you. That's why he was able to say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting the church. And when the enemy is coming after you, Jesus feels it. Because look at verse 2. I mean, verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven stars golden lampstands. Jesus is the one who's walking in the midst of his people throughout history. He's the high priest who's keeping that fire burning. And so in your life, let Jesus be the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Because here's the thing. Oftentimes I found in my experience that not only is it difficult to let Jesus be the alpha, the beginning of my experience, But if you found that when you come to Jesus, then you feel the need to perfect yourself and to be able to go on your own way and to say, that's great that Jesus helped me, he saved me, but now it's up to me. 
This is a critical error because he's both the Alpha and the Omega. He has to be the one who finishes my experience, both personally and for our church. He's the only one that can keep the fire burning. He's the only one that can keep us set on fire because he's the one that has that sword coming out of his mouth, the Holy Spirit that can bring that fire, that can set a fire in our hearts. And when I was in high school, this was a little later on, I was attending Fresno Avenue Academy and I joined the basketball team. And as I joined the basketball team, my first year, or I think it was my second year playing, there was a guy who joined the team who was amazing. He was amazing because he could dunk. And most of us in the, that private school couldn't dunk. But Aaron could dunk. And Aaron was so fast that I would play against him and he would often just put the ball between my legs and then he would go past me and make his layup. Or he would go around my back or he, would, he made me look silly playing basketball. He was shorter than I was and yet he could easily shoot over me. He could even dunk over me. Aaron was amazing. So when we had a basketball game, we were hoping that Aaron's grades were good enough so that he could play basketball. Because when Aaron played basketball, we would play and sometimes he would score 40 points, 50 points. He would win the game on his own. But you know, here's the thing. When we would go out with Aaron, if it was at lunchtime or whatever it was, you just hoped that you were on Aaron's team. And if you were on Aaron's team, you knew that you were going to win that game because Aaron was better than everybody else. But when I would play with Aaron, there was sometimes guys on the team who were like, yeah, Aaron's good, but I want to take this shot. So they would take it and they would shoot the ball. Didn't work out so well. And pretty soon we would start to lose because people weren't passing the ball to Aaron. All you had to do was to be on Aaron's team and make sure you passed the ball to Aaron and you could win the game. It was that simple. And I've realized in my experience with Jesus, all too often I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me. Now I'm going to start calling the shots in my life. Now I've got to be the one who gets it done. But Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And when we truly believe that, when we truly recognize that Jesus is everything to us, then he can begin to actually work the mighty transformation that he wants to in our lives. Because all too often, I'm making all kinds of mistakes. I'm making a mess out of my life because I'm trying so hard and I'm not really letting Jesus be who He's promised to be. I don't really believe that He is the Alpha and the Omega. But if I believe that He is, if I really believe that He is God Almighty and that He cares about me, that He's walking among the candlesticks, that He cares about my life, then what can he not enable me to do for his glory? If I'm really trusting in him. Look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. I love this promise. Philippians 1 and verse 6. Here's what Paul came to have confidence in. Philippians 1 and verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it, until the day of Jesus Christ. This is the promise to you and your experience with Jesus. 
I love how it says in Colossians 2 and verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. The same faith that saves you is the same faith that transforms your life and that gives you the ability to keep the commandments, that gives you the ability to follow Jesus in all the ways that he leads you. It's only faith in Jesus and who Jesus is that can transform your life, that can fill you with the Holy Spirit, and that can lead you to walk perfectly before God. It's only faith in Jesus as both the beginning of your faith, both the author and the finisher, as it says in Hebrews 12, verse 3. Jesus has to be everything to us. Acts of the Apostles, page 586, says, Christ is spoken of as walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks. Thus, he has symbolized his relation to the churches. He is in constant communication with his people. He knows their true state. He observes their order, their piety, their devotion. Although he is high priest and mediator in the sanctuary above, yet he is represented as walking up and down in the midst of his churches on the earth. With untiring wakefulness and unremitting vigilance, he watches to see whether the light of any of his sentinels is burning dim or going out. If the candlesticks were left to mere human care, the flickering flame would languish and die. But he is the true watchman of the Lord's house, the true warden of the temple courts. His continued care and sustaining grace are the source of life and light. Friends, we are called to be the light of the world. But we can't light the world on our own. We can't light this world without letting Jesus become the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, everything to us. Until we really believe that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior, even when we've messed up, and we're in trouble because of the things that we have done in our life, it's only Jesus that can get us out. It's only Jesus that can see us through. When I started off in ministry, I had all these plans and visions of what I wanted to accomplish. I was doing something called the Youth Evangelism Team. We were traveling around to different schools, and we had this vision. We're going to get every high school student at an Adventist academy, and they're all going to go to this amazing youth conference this December. We plotted out the whole year. We had all these plans about how amazing it was going to be. You know what God had to do for me? He had to let all of that fall through. And as I began to recognize that none of it was coming true like I expected, and that all my plans, all the things that I thought that I could accomplish, that I could get done, were failing, I began to realize that I have to radically depend upon Jesus. That apart from him, I can do absolutely nothing. If Jesus himself said, of myself I can do nothing, how much less can I accomplish? So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through in your life. I don't know where you're at with salvation. Maybe you're saying, I got to do a little bit more before I can get to Jesus before I can have that walk with Jesus again. Don't buy that lie from the devil. Jesus is the alpha. He is the beginning of your experience. Go to Jesus now. Maybe you've accepted Jesus years ago and yet you're saying, why do I keep stumbling? Why do I keep having these things? Go to Jesus as the finisher of your faith, as the omega of your experience, as the only one who can be the ending for you. Maybe you're thinking about our church, our church here locally or our global church and wondering how can the work ever be finished? It can only be finished by the author and finisher of our faith, by the Alpha and the Omega. 
Maybe you're wondering about financial struggles that you're going through. Maybe you're wondering how you're going to get through school, how you're going to find a job. Maybe you're wondering how you're going to make it through the family chaos that's going on. Maybe you're wondering what you're going to do with your life. No matter what you're facing, if you truly let Jesus be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, absolutely everything for you, then He will see you through. He promises that He will complete the good work which He has begun in your life. I believe that some of you today are facing specific things that you haven't been letting Jesus be the Alpha and the Omega of. And I know that's true in my life. So today, I want to stand and say, Jesus, I want you to be the Alpha and the Omega in some very specific situations in my life. And if there's something in your life, something that you're recognizing, hey, I've been trying to handle this problem on my own. I've been trying to figure out solutions on my own, and it's not working. I need the Almighty. I need the Alpha and the Omega. I need the beginning and the end to be the one who sees me through this problem. I want to invite you to stand with me as I pray. Jesus, you are an all-sufficient Savior. And yet so often I try to take it into my own hands. I try to figure out solutions on my own. And Lord, we're standing just recognizing that we need a larger faith in you. It says in the book Patriarchs and Prophets that every failure on the part of the people of God is due to our lack of faith. Forgive us for not recognizing that you are the Almighty, that you can do anything and everything, that you can accomplish everything that we're concerned about. Father, whatever situations that are represented by those who are standing I ask that you would show up in a mighty way as they surrender dependence to you and say, apart from you, we can do nothing. Father, show up in such a mighty way. Prove that you are able to finish the good work which you have begun in hearts. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.